Now I come in and buy that property that they've made look beautiful. Now I get the chance to come in and start to update their operations and systemize the operation and just make better decisions. Welcome closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season two on sales. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actual insights to help you grow your property management empire. So whether you manage a hundred or a thousand units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Bruce Peterson, a multifamily investor and the CEO and founder of Blue Bonnet Asset Manager and Blue Bonnet Commercial Construction. After a 20-year career in retail, Bruce made his first real estate investment, which yielded a 300% return, and he's been hooked ever since. Today, Bruce syndicates large multifamily deals in Central Texas, properties ranging from 120 to 300 units per property, and he currently manages over 900 units in a portfolio producing average returns of 8 to 9% annually for his investors. Bruce is obviously a little different than our usual guest, but that's a good thing. Today, we're going to get a chance to hear the perspective of a successful real estate investor and why and how he has decided to successfully insource. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Hey, man. Glad to be here. Hey, so give me a little bit of your background. How did you end up winding your way into real estate investing and property management? Well, I kind of backdoored this thing, I guess. Uh, I retired myself at 43, working for other people for you know 25 years. It was eating me alive, so I decided to go out and try to figure out something else to do on my own. I retired myself from retail, believe it or not. I was a big box store manager uh, for a lot of different companies. Before that, I was a stockbroker in the early 90s. But what I quit working for somebody else because I just couldn't get up and go do it one more day. I just had to stop. You know, I started doing some research, trying to figure out this real estate thing I kept hearing about, found somebody to kind of show me the ropes. And, you know, it's been the best thing I've ever done, the most profitable and by far the most rewarding thing I've ever done. So let's just get into the specifics. First deal, walk me through the, the mechanics of your first deal. All right. So the first one I bought was 2012, the end of 2012. It was a 48 unit property in North Austin. And, you know, it was something I found on LoopNet. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows what that is when I'm talking about it, but it's MLS for commercial. I had developed a pretty core group of people around me that we all got to know, like, and trust each other because I didn't have any experience at all doing this, right? I'm a retail guy. But we found this property. We did some, we got it under contract, did the due diligence. And I developed a, a good circle around me that they trusted me on this investment with no experience. So we bought it, I think it was September 29th of 2012. Our plan was to hold it for five to seven years and make anywhere from 10 to 12% returns while we held it. So the Austin market, of course, happened to everybody. And so from 2012 to 2015, our rent skyrocketed. Uh, we dialed in operations and we increased the value dramatically. So I went back to my investor and said, look, I know we said we were going to keep it for five to seven years, 
But wow, you know, let's not get greedy. You know, if this market changes, I would hate to have left all this appreciation on the table. So we went ahead and sold and made a 300% total return in two years and four months on that deal. Wow. Talk to me about the initial kind of pro forma, like operationally, the cash flow aside from the sale, what was the the spread or the deviation between what you initially anticipated and what happened? It sounds like it was off in a, in a good way. Well, it was off in a good way to some degree, right? Again, it was my first one, didn't have any experience. I learned a whole lot of lessons on what to really look for in due diligence that I didn't know on that first deal. So at the beginning, it was a little rockier than we anticipated, but then we hit our stride near two and we were hitting 12, 13, 14% returns quarterly. Well, you know, annualized paid out quarterly. We started off not really hitting our mark, but then after a year of, you know, bumps and bruises and going through a full rental cycle, we started to hit our stride and that's when we started to make up ground and then we sold and just killed it. And how many doors was that? 48. What did the managing the day-to-day operations look like? Were you were you full-time figuring that out? Were you part-time? What was the labor like? I was no time in that respect, right? Because, I again, I'm not a property manager. I have a management company. So back then, that was my first property. I took over, and the seller had a management company in place. The bank, since I had no experience, they insisted I had third-party management, which made total Uh, sense. So I inherited their third-party management. Well, I inherited. I brought them on as my third party because I didn't have an office on site either. It was managed from a property down the street, and they would just come down as needed. So it, it wasn't an ideal situation. But I told my management company at the time that, look, once I get my feet under me and I construct an on site office, I'm going to directly hire my own property manager and I'm probably going to let you guys go. And we went into it with that understanding and it worked out very, very well. So I built that office, little 10 by 10, 12 by 12, something like that. Very, very small, but it's all the 48 unit needed. And I hired myself a part time manager and a part time maintenance guy. And it just kept getting better from there because now I'm 100% in control. So how did the margins change? Do you remember, I know this is quite a ways back, but do you remember the management fee you were being charged originally by the third party company? It was 4%. I think now at the scale I'm at now, if I was to take my portfolio out, I could easily get it for three. But back then for 48 unit, and that's the only thing I had for him, it was 4%. So now again, if I was to do it again, I'd definitely be able to get it for three. When you say things get better, was that based on the fact that you just net cost savings or is that more byproduct of the fact that you had the control and were able to drive efficiencies that you couldn't when you were doing it via proxy? There's really two things. So the first thing is, you know, now I have a property manager on site every day. Now she's part time, but she works five hours a day. And so now there were eyes on property all the time where, you know, not to scare anybody. I'm sure a lot of your audience has dealt with this stuff, too. But when I bought There were homeless people hanging around. There were prostitutes running around the property. But now that I have somebody there sitting there all day, every day, or most of the day, every day, they realized I can't just do what I want to at this property any longer. It's like a scarecrow. (laughs) Exactly. So it kind of started to clean itself up that way. But one thing I really, really noticed by hiring an experienced property manager, for me with no experience, She finally stepped in. She said, Bruce, you're like most new owners. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, that does not sound like a good (laughs) open to this conversation. She goes, if you will get out of my way, 
and let me <laughs> lease these things. You want to over rehab them for this neighborhood by a lot. And I can rent it for the uh, same price as you want and not put nearly as much money in. I was like, okay, I trust you. I absolutely trust you, but I'm going to be watching. And she made me look stupid, right? But that's why you hire smarter people, more experienced people and listen to them and get out of the way. Love it. Yeah, totally makes sense. So you go full circle on this deal, you cash out, you've got a, a group of happy investors, and then talk me through your next prospecting process on your next deal. So actually, that first deal spawned my next two deals. So one initial investment created three properties for me because I made enough money in that first deal that gave me my investing dollars into the next two deals. So really, that one turned into three. But in between, you know, I can get a little squirrel brain sometimes. And I decided, hey, this real estate thing works spectacularly well. Let's go do something else. So, yeah, I'm, I'm real smart sometimes. So I went and started an oil services company, you know, chasing that hot industry back in what? 13, no, 14, I guess it was, lost my butt in that market, decided, okay, I'm coming back home to where I know how to do it. I know it's more rational and it's much more profitable. So I took about a year, well, actually about a two-year hiatus, but then I got re-engaged at the very end, December of 2015, we bought our second property, 120 units, also in North Austin, down the street from the first property. And over the next 18 months, we bought four properties total for uh, 860 units. Okay. And were they all roughly the same size or was there one kind of monster property there that, that held the, the majority of those units? Well, the first one, the 48 bought and sold. And the second one was 120. The third one was 256. The fourth one was 192. And uh, the last one we closed in September of this year, uh, of last year, I guess, was 292. What do you feel like are the ranges of where the type of multifamily property really becomes a different animal? Obviously, there's a difference between a 40 and a 400 unit property, but are there like meaningful ranges or bands of where you feel like you're really dealing with a different animal based on unit count? Oh, of course. You know, everybody talks about the the unwritten rule of thumb, I guess, is 100 units, right? 100 units and above, you can afford full-time inside and full-time outside. So the rules of thumb say one full-time in and out for every 100 units. So that gets pretty good because now you've got somebody dedicated there 40 hours a week, but you've only got one person. If that person gets sick, goes on vacation, has maternity leave, ha whatever, you know, that, that kind of throws a wrench in things. So what I've come to learn, and I think everybody knows this after you get into this for a while and you always hear it, it gets easier with size. My 300 unit property is dramatically easier to run than my 48 because now I have three bodies inside and now I have four bodies outside. So it's just tremendous. There's a lot more specialization. If one person gets sick, hey, there's two people in the, in the office to pick up the slack. So yeah, it's dramatically easier the bigger you get. As you've networked with other investors by that i mean other people that are doing what you do because the people that have actually gave you the capital did they have a background in real estate or doing anything in multifamily or were these just contacts with capital that trusted you contacts with capital that trusted me for the most part uh my first deal i had a private investigator i had a math teacher I had a bunch of tech guys that they were looking for a way to invest their money into real estate but they didn't have the time or they just didn't want to deal with what they perceived as the headache of managing the day-to-day -day operations of this company 
So for a lot of my clients, they're in the single family management space. So they're not really doing a ton of multifamily. Occasionally, they'll be dealing with small multi, duplex, triplex, quad, whatever. Or occasionally, they'll get a midsize multifamily, really a smaller multifamily property, something that's going to be 100 doors or less. But in terms of the persona of the people that they are interacting with, most of the investors, so I'm differentiating this from accidental landlords, most of these investors, they're going to own you know, five plus properties and they are intentional, but they're certainly an order of magnitude down from institutional. How do you think that the profile of single family investors differs from folks that are actively engaged with multifamily deals, like folks that are basically not not syndicating, but actually owning one or more multifamily properties? Well, you know, that's tough because a lot of times they're the same. But when you do start to get up there in larger and larger properties, much nicer properties, you're you're dealing with a much bigger set of sophisticated people. The single family guys and the guys that are going to go out and buy the four, six, eight, 12 unit property. I don't mean this disparagingly, but they're very often mom and pops, right? They just run it the way they run their personal budget out of their house. That doesn't really work when you scale in multifamily. You actually have a business with a P&L, with staff, with benefits. You have all that stuff. So a lot of times when people are coming out of the single family or the very small multifamily realm, they sometimes they can struggle because they have a hard time adapting to running a legitimate business. So it just gets much more sophisticated, especially when you go out and start buying from some of these guys. Now you're used to operating in a very small pond and now you're getting into a much deeper pool that has a, they're not sharks necessarily. Some of them are, but they are much more sophisticated. So what do you think about the pros and cons for an unsophisticated investor? Somebody that's taken that first plunge, they own their first property and they're really interested in exploring and kind of scaling this. What do you think about the level of complexity and accessibility for that person to either buy multiple single family properties or to get in on syndicating and owning whatever, one tenth of a multifamily deal? If you were just advising another you know, the math teacher, whoever, what would you say are the pros and cons of these two strategies? Well, the second strategy where you're just going to own one tenth of the deal that you spoke of, I mean, that's by far the easiest, but it's it's a lower payoff because now you're just a silent partner. You're a limited partner with really no say day to day, which is fine, which is what most people want. They don't want to deal right. with the, the dead guy at the property and, you know, the bed bugs. And, you know, I could say that on your podcast because everybody knows what I'm talking about. I'm not scaring anybody. They don't want to deal with that stuff. So it's much, much easier for them if they just want to be invested and involved in real estate. It's so much easier to find somebody that's experienced and just invest alongside them. The other side of it now, you get somebody that's coming out of the one and two unit properties and now they're going to get into apartment complexes, you know, six to 12, 18 unit properties. The payoff is a lot higher. Because now things are valued on an NOI basis and not on a comp of your next door neighbor. You can control your value a lot more in multifamily than you can in single family. But again, now you're the one making the decisions day to day and it can get a little white knuckled. It it does, no matter how good you are, how much you prepare, there's going to be something that's going to you know smack you in the face every once in a while. You just got to be able to pick yourself up and keep moving. 
So you're saying you can control the value through operations. Is that what you meant there? Absolutely. So I can go in and I can clean things up. I buy a lot of properties from multi-billion dollar companies. Well, these multi-billion dollar companies, very often, not always, they have gotten into this industry because they see there's a lot of money to be made in their opinion. So they come in, they buy and they flip an apartment complex, which usually is one to two years. So they're good at coming in and putting a cosmetic facelift on the thing. You know, they, they upgrade the major systems. They do some landscaping. They paint. So they do a really good exterior rehab. But what I'm learning is they're not truly operators. They're just mm-hmm. deal makers. So they flip it off to the next guy. Now, I come in and buy that property that they've made look beautiful. Now, I get the chance to come in and start to update their operations and systemize the operation and just make better decisions, you know, clean up the place, not let everybody and their brother in. If you can fog up a mirror, you know, that kind of stuff. So we dial in our operations and we get dramatically more profitable. So walk me through that. What are some of the real differentiators that you feel like have allowed you to get dramatically more profitable? I empower my staff. I tell them that, look, I'm hiring you to perform this duty, to have this job with me. This is what I expect. And these are the tools to do the job. But then again, I get out of their way. I get out of their way and I give them a lot of flexibility, a lot of autonomy that they can make decisions day to day without having to consult me all the time. I usually give them about, you know, it changes from property to property some, but if it's a major capital project and it's less than $1,000, it's a repair, it's a capital project, whatever, just go do it. Don't ask my permission. Don't pass it by me, but I will see it hit my P&L, my income statement. So just be able to speak to why you did what you did. And same thing like with a, uh, a renewal gift, give up to 200 bucks, anything above that, you need to get me involved, but anything below 200 bucks, don't bog yourself down, make the decision, move on, be able to support your decision when we talk about it. So I, I believe fully in giving them autonomy. You know, I learned that from my first manager, just get out of their way the best I can. $200 for a renewal gift. You're talking about paying the, the tenant for renewing a lease. If it's needed, it's only on an as needs basis. Most of the time, you don't need to offer anything. Some people will be on the fence, go, you know, it's really pretty on the other side of the fence over there. The grass is a little greener. And, sure. you know, I'm, I'm thinking about moving. Well, I'll tell you what. What if I give you a, a ceiling fan in your living room because maybe they don't have one right now? Oh, well, that's only 50 bucks. It, you know, a lot of times that'll get us another lease. That'll get them to renew. Well, 50 bucks is a lot better than uh, somebody moving out and have to turn that unit over. Yeah. So, yeah. So when it's needed, yeah, they have the authority to go up to 200 bucks. So empowering employees, I think for, for anybody that's got any even remotely progressive mindset, it makes sense. But that said, the flip side of that is accountability. What are the knobs, the dials, the KPIs, the metrics that you use either daily, weekly, or monthly to make sure that your empowered, smart staff is doing what you've asked of them? Well, the biggest thing is you can't just, you know, give them all these parameters and then just run away, you know, go to Spain for, you know, six years. Don't do that. You have to still keep eyes on property. If you're going to act as a regional manager, let's call it, because that's kind of that's one of the hats that I wear. We're about to bring on our first regional manager soon. But as the regional manager, I need to be visiting these properties as the owner until I have a regional. I need to be visiting these properties, you know, at least once a month, in my opinion. You know, if it's a if it's a new takeover or a property that's struggling, maybe two or three times a week sometimes. So trust, but verify. And of course, I'm, I'm able to manage everything also remotely from a PL. 
there are tricks you can play. I get that, but we're really good at spotting most of those problems. And if, if you're doing something weird, we're going to figure it out. My wife is a her background is an auditor, as a CPA auditor for multifamily and tax return. Now that's an unfair advantage. I understand that most people don't have that, but we're able to you know watch watch our budgetary numbers and watch our P and L, watch the rent roll, the the lease terminations, uh, our dashboard, all that stuff. I can do a lot of the management remotely. What about third-party software? What's in the mix for for your management process? So we've always used third-party management software. We've never spreadsheeted. We've never written it on the back of a napkin for you guys that are going to buy a five-unit property. Please do not do that. At least do Excel. But if you plan on growing above that five to 10-unit property, go ahead and get a low-cost property software suite. That way you can start learning for your growth. We use Resmin right now. Uh, we've never used one side or you already two of the bigger ones. Resmin is fairly reasonably priced and it's it's as robust as we need it to be. Now, there might be something in Yardy that we don't have that I'm not aware of, but it does everything and then some that we need it to do. I've heard great things about Resmin. They really seem like they're an up and coming player right now. What about uh, any other vendors? Have you ever taken a look at Buildium, for example? No, I, I know a lot of people that use Buildium, Appfolio, but no, I've, I've never thought about leaving. I've not been dissatisfied in any way. They're very, very, very responsive. They're like any growing company. Things happen every once in a while. There's a hiccup, but they make it right, right? And part of the autonomy for my managers, a lot of the major property management companies, the big, big, big guys out there, I know from my experience in corporate America and retail, and I think the property management space is the same way. If I have a problem with the software, either I can't figure out how to make something work or this report doesn't exist that I would like to see, you have to escalate that through your organization. It has to go through two, three, four, five different levels before that in-person can finally contact Resmin. We don't do that. We give you access right away at the property level management and above, not assistant manager, not leasing agent, anything like that. But the property managers can directly call Resmin. They can text with them. They can chat with them or they can call them directly. We give them that authority. So it makes things run so much smoother. So let's kind of go back to talking about contrasting what you're doing now versus working with a third party management company. And obviously at the scale that you're doing it, it's not that different, right? I mean, presumably you could begin managing other multifamily properties that you don't own if you wanted to. Fair? That's fair. And we're thinking about that. But in the state of Texas, you have to hold a broker's license, which we do not. So we would have to, you know, figure that out if we decide to go that way. But yeah, we're, you know, doing everything they're doing for the most part. All right. So how do you think that the your yields would be impacted if you did choose to work with a third-party management company? Let's just get past the obvious things that could go wrong. Let's say that, they're, that they were competent to your satisfaction. And for whatever reason, you just decided that you didn't want to be managing that operations. How do you anticipate that the overall yield in your investment would change? Really, it wouldn't change from the investment standpoint. But, you know, the thing that would change, obviously, is I wouldn't get that earned income from having a management company. I, you know, have a management company. So I get the 3% management fee in my company that I pay all, you know, the infrastructure for that management company. So it wouldn't affect the investment directly. It would probably run just as well, provided, like you said, I find somebody that I like and trust. We're on the same page. 
and they allow me to at least be a little involved. I, I, I know I won't get any say in the hiring and firing of staff for the most part. You know, I know my place. We've considered doing that, but I love everything about owning a management company. So <laughs> I, I don't ever want to give it up. Unlikely. <laughs> So then let's talk about either what I might call buying criteria or in your case, what you think are just the criteria of what actually defines a high performance, fully functioning property management company. And maybe you can kind of couch it in terms of if you were looking at a third party vendor, like what are the key issues for you that if you get an unsatisfactory answer would just be a total deal breaker? Well, you know, it's it's the feel good stuff, right? Because it matters. It absolutely matters hugely that I want to know how do you treat your employees? How do you deal with a difficult tenant? There are professional and tactful ways and respectful ways to deal with this stuff. You know, I believe firmly, I think it was the founder of Southwest Airlines. I think his name was Kelleher that, you know, the most important people in my organization are not the tenants, believe it or not. You know, it's the employees. If I take care of my employees, they will you know, just kind of by default, take care of the residents and the tenants and everybody will be happy because they're happy working there. That's the biggest thing. How do you interact with others? How do you deal with stress? Because there's going to be stressful things that happen if somebody gets in your face on site because, you know, even on an A plus property, you're going to have some people get very, very upset for whatever reason. How do you handle that? That's the stuff I want to know. We can come to terms and agreements on what color I think that toilet should be, you know, and what kind of landscaping I want to see out there. That's all workable. I want to make sure that we align fundamentally and ethically, I guess you'd say. I want to make sure that the character is there. And I know that's not a really, you know, hard and fast thing to point to. It's more in the ether, but that that's it for me. Well, how do you suss it out? Because I feel like the flip side of what you just described is a equally nebulous and vague description from the management company. We're number one. We care about our employees. We love our tenants. We do right by our investors, blah, blah, blah. I mean, how do you dig in to actually verify all of the things that you just articulated? That's a great question because what I actually, I'd start asking questions about, okay, so what does that look like for you? Tell me some things that you've done. Tell me how you've really knocked yourself out for a resident and, you know, not the the canned interview question. So tell me some some way that you went above and beyond in, the, in your scope of duty. No, <laughs> no, that's not what I'm talking about. Tell me about some of the community outreach stuff you've done. Tell me about some of the parties you've done, the fun little drawings or raffles with your employees what have you done special for your employees? Okay, it's not to me, it's not enough that they have a job. They should be happy to get a damn paycheck. I, I don't buy that. They want to feel needed and a part of something, or they're not going to be happy and they're not going to stay. And yes, it's your management company at this point if I'm third partying, but that affects my property because you have a carousel of people running through my freaking property. So mm-hmm. I want to know how do you engage with your employees? How I want to know what their autonomous approach is. Like, again, I empower people. How do you empower people if you do it all? So that's the stuff I want to know. Now, what would your expectations be in terms of reporting specifically? I'm curious what what the deal breakers would be for you there. Well, see, that's tough because I've always self-managed. So I have access to every report in creation, right? So, but I think the things that I would need to see is I want to see collections. I want to see lease expirations and renewals. 
uh, turnover rate is huge for me. And then, you know, the basic P&L, the rent roll, that kind of stuff. But my big things are turnover, obviously, you know, why profitability, that kind of stuff and collections. You know, you can bill out $200,000 a month, but if you're only collecting 13 bucks, you're not helping me, dude. <laughs> so for, for a turnover rate, what's an acceptable range for you there? Well, I know industry average last report I saw in 2014 was 54%, 55%. Totally unacceptable for me. I expect it to be below 40%. One of my properties in San Antonio right now, they consistently run below 20%. Wow. Yeah. Now, I know that's not sustainable for most properties, most management companies. We just have a spectacular thing going at that property. What about tenant screening? Best applicant versus first applicant. What are your what are your thoughts on the process and, and the kind of answers that you would want to be hearing from a management company that would make you think that they're actually doing that well? Well, really, to me, it's it's pretty simple. Now, again, I'm more of a regional slash CEO of my company, so I'm not the one, you know, in the weeds doing it day to day. So I don't know all the just down and dirty specifics, but I want to make sure they're actually doing it. I want to see, you know, it gets tricky. How do I verify you're doing it, right? Because I can't ask to go see an existing property's lease files, right? That's against the law. That's private information. I can't see that. The one thing I can say is this is not my phrase, my maxim. Everybody said it throughout the years, but hire slow, fire fast. You know, take time to get to know them. But then once you decide on somebody, give them a little while. If things don't seem to be going well, you got to make a move fast. You can't be scared to have the difficult conversation because it's your business that's on the line. So again, hire slow and fire fast. How do you think that your investment strategy is going to either the management company or the investment strategy is going to change over the next couple of years? What what meaningful changes do you see on the horizon? I don't think it'll change much because right now what I'm doing is buying fully stabilized properties anyway. So it's not like I'm buying a lot of deep value add just completely neglected properties that are, yeah, I'm not buying, like, there's not many of them on the, on the market right now. Most of that's already been run through the system and cleaned back up and resold. So I don't know that anything's really going to change. The one thing I've got to keep in mind, for those of you that understand underwriting a property, I've got to go back to a higher cap rate. Right now, I'm buying at a six to a six and a quarter for the most part. But I've got to realize that as interest rates start to creep up quarterly now, I'm going to see my cap rate start to rise. So, you know, if I'm buying at six and a quarter in a couple of years, that might be back to seven. It, you know, it, you know, a few years after that, it could get right back to kind of more of a historic norm of eight. So that's the biggest thing I have to be cognizant of. But again, I'm not really going to change anything. When you think about prospecting, et cetera, where have you sourced deals historically in terms of deal flow? What's been most effective for you to find the right deal? You know, I was talking to a, a really good friend of mine the other day. He was trying to get into this space. He said, hey, you know, I'm, I forgot what they're called, like yellow letters or whatever, you know, the, the dialing yeah, for dollars, yeah, the mailing yeah. for dollars. I'm like, dude, quit doing that. Having said that, it, it probably can work at a five to 12 unit property, something like that, I, I would assume, because those are mom and pop people. A lot of them are just tired of it. So it, it can work, but he's wanting to jump into a hundred unit property or bigger his, his first time out. You know, he's a developer. He's got a lot of background in real estate. So it's not like he's a complete newbie to this. But like, look, dude, quit doing that. Don't don't go down that road. Just develop relationships with the major broker players in your neighborhood. 
and just get to know those guys really well. See if they'll let you go to lunch, you know, buy them a coffee so they can get to know who you are, what you're looking for. And that's how I'm finding my deals. I have I've only done like two to four, fo- uh, I, I guess you call them cold calls in my life. One of them actually bared fruit, but then they realized that they couldn't sell the property because of the loan they put on the property. But for the most part, I, I don't believe that works in the space sure. I operate in. Got it. So your point here is just to, to not waste time with TV infomercial style tactics. You're not actually discounting the fact that the, the notion that the money is made on the buy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, and if you if you just have that deep ingrained in your soul because you watch somebody's late night TV show, like you said, or bought their books and tapes. And, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. Well, at least hire somebody else to do that. You know, that's not a very good use of your time. You know, get somebody you could pay them, you know, get a high school kid, eight to 10 bucks an hour or something. Have them do it. Show them how to do it, but then let them do it. Now, if it comes to phone calls, well, you probably need to make your own phone calls. But, yeah, that's just not a good approach for me at all. Makes sense. Well, I want to transition now to the rapid fire section of the interview. I ask similar questions to almost every guest. And the first question is this. Bruce, who do you learn from? There's a very, very, very large contingent of individual owners in every major metropolitan area. So they're not all the Amleys and Gray Stars of the world. So I've become friends with many, many of them. And that's where I learned the most from now. I got started. I found a, a group that kind of taught me the ropes, showed me how to do it. But then I had to go out there and do it myself. But then ongoing, it's you know lots of podcasts like this. I read a lot, and but most of it, I just I'm friends with a ton of other owners in Austin. We get together usually quarterly, about ten to twenty of us, and we just share information. So that's where I learn most of my stuff. How did you embed yourself in that group early on? I mean, did you Google Austin real estate investors? How did you meet these people? Well, yeah, you go to enough meetups, enough uh, different groups, you start to meet other people that are trying to do or are actually doing what you're doing. And in fact, I'm going to a, a meetup tomorrow uh, that somebody that I met on one of the online services will say, you know, they decided, hey, I'm in Austin. Anybody else in Austin want to get together and start a meetup? Like, sure. Why not? All networking is good networking. But all that networking, you start to run into people or at the Apartment Association is another huge resource. You got a lot of other members that are going there to try to get educated themselves. Are you a bigger pockets guy? Yep. That's the that's the group I was talking about. What podcasts do you listen to other than the Bigger Pockets podcast? Jake and Gino, Gary V. Anything Gary Vaynerchuk does, I'll listen to. I, I love that guy. I, we've, we share a personality. I, I just love everything he does. But I like Grant Cardone. You know, to be honest, I don't know that he does a podcast. I think he does YouTube videos. Uh, Tim Ferriss, you know, all that kind of. It's not always directly multifamily or directly even business. But those are my big ones. Gary in particular is actually hard to keep up with. My appetite is probably to consume about a quarter of what he puts out. It's insane, his overall level of content production. All right. So, Bruce, if you could go back to day one when you just quit your retail job and you were looking at getting into real estate investing, if you could grab yourself by the shoulders and deeply impress upon yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, you know, I, I jumped right into multifamily, so I can't say, you know, go to multifamily instead of single family. But it, it's something I heard Grant Cardone say the other day on Bigger Pockets that I went pretty big my first time out, 48 units. But I would tell myself, just go as 
hard, as big, and as fast as I can safely go. You know, don't make any stupid mistakes. Don't get crazy. Don't get reckless. You know, as a syndicator, which I am, I got a lot of people relying upon me for their return. So if I get <clears throat> reckless and lose their money, well, my whole thing falls apart, right? So, but yeah, I would definitely go as big on that first property as you can possibly go. It just gets easier, faster. Mm. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, go big or go home. And, and as a general business rule of thumb, the, the overall kind of philosophy that I hear too is that small businesses are hard and big businesses are hard. So all things being equal, if you're up for it, might as well choose to go after a bigger opportunity. Absolutely. It gives you a better lifestyle, my friend. Bruce, if folks want to listen more, if you're a property manager and you just want to see about how Bruce is syndicating his deals, if you're an investor and maybe you're interested in working with them, what's the best way for folks to see what you're up to and get in touch with you? Uh, my website, uh, I'm going to spell it out because it's a little hard to understand audio. It's apartmentguy.com, but it's apt-guy.com. You know, I've got a form. If you're interested in investing, you can submit a form. You can contact me there. We can start a dialogue. Uh, but yeah, that's how to get a hold of me best. All right. We'll link it up in the show notes. Bruce, I appreciate you coming on the show today, my man. It's been a pleasure. All right, my friend. Thank you so much.